Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they in turn dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, than indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that your word was given to those, many those, who did not understand it, it, and rather they, they twisted it to their own destruction and to the destruction of those who heard them. And so, Lord, how we pray that rather you would direct us in the way of truth and the true understanding of this pure word that you have given to us. And how we pray, Lord, that it would do us good, eternal good, in our hearts and souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were in Luke, we considered the mistakes that Pharisees make. And this morning, it is the mistakes that the law teachers make. Now, of course, in our Bibles, they are called lawyers, as they are in the text itself. But without further comment, it would be like calling them doctors. And that's, by the way, just what the authorized calls them in Luke 2.46. Came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And so in both cases, the word is associated with a profession today that is very different than what it was back then. So we have to have a further distinction. We'll call them the law teachers. Now, these people were experts in the Torah, the law of God. They studied the law, every aspect of the law, meaning both the moral and ceremonial, uh, and indeed aspects of the, the civil, although that was really out of their their hands to some extent. And all of its aspects and also its minutiae, according, not of course to its truth, but according to how it had been interpreted over the centuries, very much like the rabbis, very much like the Pharisees, and very much like their equivalents today, actually. They taught and they rendered opinions for people who came to them for advice to know what the law said for them in their case. Now, theoretically, we have to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to study God's law. And certainly not for those who still lived in the time of being under the ceremonial law. Psalm 119 declares in in many different ways, using many different words, that it is good to know, it is good to study, it is good to meditate upon God's law. So the question is, what's the problem? It would seem then that this is a very blessed profession indeed. To spend all of your time in nothing other than to study the law of God and to help people to understand it. Well, theoretically, absolutely that is the case. But the problem is they are not conveying the pure word of God as God gave it, as God intended it. They are distorting it and they are rendering it poisonous. And we know there are many such cases where you can take something that would otherwise be nutritious in food... And you change a little bit of it and you actually render it poisonous. And so it is with the word. And they distorted it. 
they're interacting, of course, from a basically wrong theology, a basically wrong idea of who God is. They're interacting with him as if they can justify themselves by keeping his law, as if the covenant of works were still in place, as if man had never fallen and their situation was like it was in Eden. They were able to fully to keep God's law and fully to receive then God's blessing for these things and eternal life along with it. But of course, that's not true. And as I said, they're not just taking the, the word of God in its purity at all. Instead, they are, they're distorting aspects of it, making some parts of it to dominate everything else. And they're taking other parts and minimizing them as if they were unimportant, very much like we saw with the Pharisees themselves. And in all of these things, they are taking something good and turning it into something destructive. Well, in fact, to the point of which when they encounter someone who's actually speaking the truth, they take offense at him and they seek to persecute him. Well, we'll consider these things and this is all under the heading. The name of the the sermon is Mistakes Law Teachers Make. And there are these four mistakes. First, they distort the word of God. Second, they load burdens without help. Third, they take offense at the truth. And fourth, they persecute true teachers. These are mistakes law teachers make. First of all, they distort the word of God. And of course, these things are not taken in chronological sequence. They are throughout our text. So in verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And here we have... This uh, Jesus is likening a true understanding of Scripture to a key of knowledge. And what a, what a wonderful picture that is. You have this thought that if you have the key, you're able to turn the lock and open the door and you enter in. And where, what, what door is that? It's the door to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, isn't he? He's the door by which people enter. And the key is the word of God. Your access to Christ is this word of God that is preached to you. And that's the key. And this key, then, that goes into the kingdom of heaven. What a precious thing to have access to that key. And I, I want you to take a moment to meditate, actually, on what an awesome, wonderful privilege it is that this key has been handed to you. It is a golden key. And through this key, you are able to come to the door, which is Christ, the one who opens to you to everlasting life and your salvation. They had this key. That key was given to them. They had access to the word of God, to this saving message that if anyone believes, they would be saved. And we know that that word is, there's more than enough in the Old Testament to bring someone to salvation. That is the, the point. And many entered in indeed through that key to everlasting life. We will see them in heaven. But they did not use that key. They did not receive the pure message that they encountered in the word of God. It was actually offensive to them, and they rejected it. The word that they received, the key that they had, they found offensive. They did not enter in themselves. They looked at the key, and they looked at the door. Who was Christ? And Christ is portrayed for them in the ceremonial law. That's what the ceremonial law is all about, to show them Christ, to show him the the person and the work of Christ. This is what he's like. He's like this lamb, and he's going to be slain on your behalf. 
and many other such things that are, are, are portrayed for us in the ceremony law. And the, it was all painting the picture of the door of Christ. And they look at that and they don't like it. And they, they, turn, they turn away to some other door of their own making, a false door that does not open to anywhere except to hell. You did not enter in yourselves, though they had the golden key. Worse, worse though, they did not enter in themselves, but those that were entering, you hindered. This is, of course, their profession. Those who are teaching, those who are conveying and interpreting the law to others, they ruined it for anyone who wanted to enter. And you have this picture, don't you, of those who are coming to them. Tell us. Sort of like the rich young ruler, you remember how he came and said, Good teacher, how shall I enter the kingdom of heaven? I'm sure there are many who had similar questions like that. And they came probably with a a fee in their hands to these lawyers. And wanted to know what should they do? How should they live their life? All with either the explicit or the implicit question of how can I live? How can I have eternal life? How can I be pleasing to God? They were the ones who were entering in. They were on that road, but they hindered them. And you have this picture then of those who were on the cusp of coming to the door of Christ. But those who had the key knocking it away from them. And and redirecting them to this false door that they had created. This crude, ugly, onerous door of their false interpretation of the law. Those who were entering in you hindered. They ruined it. They poisoned this, they, they made destructive this key, they made poison this, this water of life. Now, I, before I go on, let me just uh, remind you that truly the people of the Old Testament were saved through Christ. I, I know you know this, but I, I want to just reiterate it. We came ac- I just recently came across the Confession 11.6. As I was speaking to someone yesterday, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. All right, so the justification precisely the same in the Old and the New Testament on the same basis. And Paul makes that point in Galatians to those who have a very parallel situation as these teachers of the law. He's saying in Galatians 3.21, Is the law then given against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. That the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Isn't that a great picture? So we have a key. We also have the law itself is a tutor to bring us to Christ. And there, the law was doing its function for people. The little, whatever they knew of it, it was bringing them on their way to Christ. And there was Christ there. And there are the teachers of the law, the experts in the law, diverting the people who are on their way to Christ and bringing them to someplace else. And there Christ himself is in the the flesh. And those responsible are standing before them. They didn't enter in themselves. They did not come to Christ. And those who were trying to do so, they diverted, they moved aside, they turned aside from that. Well... 
That's their first mistake. They distorted the word of God. And we know that those who distort the word of God do so to their own destruction as well as to all those who follow them. And secondly, and I guess more specifically then, they load heavy burdens without help. In verse 46, he said to them, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. By the way, the parallel text, although it's given in the third person rather than the second person, the parallel uh, text is Matthew 23, 4. It's like this. For they, be- they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And it just adds a little bit of co- color there. You imagine someone who is, who is there, he's come innocently to the teacher of the law, and he is bu- throwing burdens onto this man's, this poor man's shoulder until he's bent down, barely able to walk. And they let him go to topple over without doing anything to support or bear that burden. These law teachers were good at that. That was their expert skill. Perhaps even they took a kind of perverse pride in loading people up as far as they knew how because it made them a better law expert than someone else. Now, again, in some, in some way, there's a truth to that, actually. There, there is a truth to that. That if you give people rightly an understanding of God's law and all of its perfection, in all of its moral purity, people rightly should walk away saying there is absolutely no way I can bear this burden. No one can. Rather than the illusion that they gave, which is having loaded them down with 99% of the law plus some other things that they added onto it themselves, An incredible, unbearable burden that they put on. They gave them the impression, yes, you can. You can. You can make it. I won't help you. I've never seen anyone make it myself, actually. But maybe you'll be the first to be able to bear this burden which I put upon you. That was the wrong impression that they gave to them. You know, that's, by the way, what is said in Acts 15. You know, the Jerusalem Council, the Presbytery meeting, the General Assembly held in in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem to to decide this matter, this particular uh, wrong teaching that was coming in with regard to the law. What is the status of the law? And here's what was said. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them, meaning the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? There is somebody who knows. There is someone who speaks the truth and says to these law experts who are attempting to put a, a burden on even the Christian disciples and say, why are you doing this? Neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear this burden. Indeed, we know that's one of the great points. One of the great purposes of the law, the second use of the law, the one that Luther was so rightly uh, enthused with as he discovered it. It is a tutor. It is a means that brings us to Christ as we say, I see this law and I know that I cannot keep it. 
It is a burden which neither we nor our fathers nor anyone has ever been able to bear, with one minor exception. As I say, they were putting this yoke on the neck of the disciples, which no one could bear. And if that were not enough, by the way, as we have seen, they even added to the law things of their own invention, like this ceremonial washing that everyone needed to do, not just the priests. They added to it. So as I say, they're very, very good at loading people with burdens that were impossible to bear. But what they weren't so good at, what the profession was not known for, was helping people with their burden. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. All the people received from them was a greater burden than they came. Imagine that. They came already burdened, heavily burdened. And they left from their presence, having only a greater burden added to them. That was their job. And they received not the slightest degree of help from their hands or even hope from their lips. No gospel was there. No balm in Gilead. But think now of the contrast. We have to immediately think of the contrast between these men. The lawyer is taking great offense at Jesus, speaking to him. The lawyer who knew nothing other than to lay down burdens on people. And the thought had never occurred to him of helping with him. That's not his job. That's not his remit. And there is Christ who came precisely so that he might bear the burden of a heavily burdened people. Who looked down from heaven and saw and heard the groaning of the people. And came to do something about it. Came to bear the burden. Indeed, he himself, it wasn't, you know, those, who, those leaders who have all kinds of good ideas for other people that they themselves don't even do. He started, of course, by bearing the burden of the law. Galatians 4.4 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that he himself bore that burden his entire life. In fact, as I mentioned, he's the minor exception. He actually did fulfill completely all the requirements of the law his entire life. That is why his enemies could not find a single sin to accuse him with. They had to become very inventive and creative to find anything at all to even accuse him of. Because he kept the law perfectly. He bore the burden himself. And as we know... More so, he bore it for us. And you have an opposite picture, don't you, of Christ. Rather than the law teacher who is there, he has a storehouse of burdens, the real ones, which are heavy enough. And then he has some spurious extra ones to add on as well. And there, and people come, and as they pay him, he loads them up with as many burdens as they can possibly not bear. And they walk away, and they topple over. Christ comes, and people come to him already burdened, and he says, I'll take that. And one by one, he takes those burdens and puts it on his own back, and he bears them for him. Isn't that a great contrast that we have? We don't have these despicable law experts who take perverse delight and loadiness with burdens they themselves will not touch. But Christ, who in his His wonderful love and great compassion for his people actually take these burdens upon himself. Well, but these teachers, as I say, their second mistake was to load heavy burdens without any help. And thirdly, they take offense at the truth. It's great irony, of course, in their situation. Those who are supposed to be teachers of the truth, they actually take offense when the truth comes. 
In verse 45, then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Now, just a, a note here on the word reproach. That's a, a fine word, but the idea probably comes across better today as insult. I think it conveys better the idea of someone intentionally wanting to say something offensive to someone, wanting to insult someone, coming under the heading of mistreating people. Okay, that's, that's the idea of, of what's being said. It's like what the rebels do to the king's messengers in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 26. That's what they did. They mistreated them and they, they insulted them. Now I want you to understand that Jesus was not actually guilty of that sin. He did not insult them. He did not mistreat them with his lips. He was not hateful to them in these ways. Not at all. He did not seek to offend them unnecessarily in this way, but they took offense as if they had insulted him. You see that? They took offense as if he had insulted them, but all he had done was to speak the plain truth to them, and this truth was offensive to them. Matthew Henry says, It is a common thing for unhumbled sinners to call and count reproofs reproaches. And isn't that true? It is a very common thing for unhumbled sinners to count reproofs as reproaches, meaning those, these warnings, these admonitions, these rebukes, to count these things of pure good truth, to count them as insulting. Now, all Jesus said says, woe to you, and to explain why that was true. These, it was going to be very bad for them in the judgment, And he listed out some of the reasons for why that was. Woe to you, Pharisees, and then woe to you, lawyers. It's a statement of fact. It's a fair warning. But the lawyers took this as insulting speech. And they cleverly had figured out that the things which Jesus had said with regard to the Pharisees also applied to them as well. And so they decided to take umbrage offense at that as well. And that's the sense in which they come to Jesus and say, you realize, of course, that by what you're saying there, you insult us as well. That's the sense in which they're they're not saying, Jesus, you know... Um, the, the things you're saying here, that, that, that's kind of, that's an insult to us. No. They, in their creativity, and they, in their darkness, and they, in their sin and dislike of the truth, take offense unnecessarily to the true things that Jesus said. Now, that's what law teachers, that's what all false teachers do, and that's really their equivalent, their successors today are false religious teachers. They are hypersensitive because their root problem is, of course, sin. And, or their root problem is, of course, pride. And even the most loving correction or admonition is taken as if it were an insult. They choose to live in darkness. And so when the, when the light comes, they are offended by it. And you can imagine what that results in. Just think about it. What would, would happen if someone were to take offense every time that someone spoke the truth to them? Every time that some aspect of their own pride, of their own false teaching, of their own darkness was made clear to them, and every time such a thing, a light was directed towards them, they take offense, they, they take umbrage, they put up a wall of defense, and they shut it out. How much darkness would you be in after living that way for a while? Well, let me just say that Christ is not like that. Is he? Christ is the light. 
He is not offended by it. He's not hypersensitive. I, I would say that too. You know, they're taking offense at this thing. I'm amazed sometimes at the things that Jesus doesn't take offense in in the Gospels. The, 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 the disciples, particularly Peter, but really some of the others as well, say all kinds of crazy things. The best you can say for is an extreme lack of tact, but other times very, very, very insensitive and really something that if you're the least bit sensitive, you would say, you know, that's, that's kind of insulting to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't take unnecessary offense. He's not overly sensitive to that thing. He has a very thick skin, actually. Why? Because he's so completely secure in who he is. He's not, he has no reason to be sensitive. His, his position is not insecure in the slightest. He's not worried about someone coming close to the truth about him, putting a finger on the reality about him. Not at all. He hopes that they come to the truth, the full truth about them. Well... Anyhow, as I say, these false teachers are nothing like Jesus Christ. A contrast could not be any greater between the, the, the one, this great source of light, the one whom the sun is merely a pale reflection of, designed to be a, reflect, a pale uh, picture of what Christ is like, but not quite uh, in all of his complete fullness. And that's why in eternity there won't be a sun, actually. Christ himself will be more than sufficient. And then these teachers of darkness, like black holes... Not only darkness, but sources of darkness. If there's any light around them, it, turn, it sucks it in and turns it into darkness. Well, that was their third mistake, was to take offense at the truth when it came to them. That was their, that was their hope. That was their salvation. It was a source of truth. They weren't going to get it from one another. But rather, they took offense at that. Their fourth mistake was it to go on to persecute True teachers. That's the fourth mistake of law teachers is that they seek to persecute those who teach the truth. Verse 53, and as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. See this, assail him vehemently. You know, this is not a casual conversation. They are vehement and they are enraged at this one who has exposed their lies, has rebuked them rightly in truth, can't stand them, and is persecuting them. Now, by the way, once we understand what they're doing at the end of all this, once we understand what they're doing at the end as far as assailing him vehemently, cross-examining him, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him, once we understand all that, seek by which they might accuse him, and what does that mean? Well, they're eventually going to put this plan into motion, actually. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to bring an accusation against Jesus in order to have him put to death. Right? That's their plan. Having that idea in mind, then, of what they're doing at this very moment enables us to understand what was said in the, long, the section uh, between verse 47 and, and 53. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation." 
Now, at first you have to say, I don't get Jesus' point exactly. How is it that they are identifying themselves with the murderers of the prophets simply by making memorials, building the tombs for the prophets? Now, we have to say, of course, they didn't think so. Okay? It wasn't intended to make that connection. That was not their, their, their outward intention. They didn't think that they were identifying themselves in that way. But Jesus begins with the fact that they had made such a special point of this action of building the tombs of the prophets. Notice that's a characteristic of them and not of him. Okay? It's a characteristic of these teachers of the law that they made a particular point of building up the memorials and taking care of the tombs of the prophets. And the question is why? No one had a greater respect for true prophets than Jesus. But Jesus didn't do that. His disciples didn't do that. John the Baptist didn't do that. What, what's, what's going on here? No one had greater respect for No one had greater continuity with these true prophets than Christ. He was the absolute fulfillment of the truest prophet. And all those were just forerunners before him. But he didn't do that. Why? Instead, I want you to see that this is a typical feature of false teacher, a typical feature of false teachers, that they seek to make some sort of superficial connection with the true teachers that preceded them because they have no real connection with them in terms of what they teach. Do you guys understand? They want to go out of their way to say, this is, oh, look at this wonderful prophet. And we'll build up the, 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 uh, the tomb. They'll make a good ceremony. So you see the teachers of the law there at the tomb of Isaiah. And they're building that one. And the tomb of Zechariah and so forth. So you get the idea that they have a real continuity when they have no more continuity than the devil with these true prophets. And so because they lack an actual continuity with these great teachers, so today, false teachers, make an exaggerated show of being the disciples of orthodox theologians. Did you know that? It's really true. They, they go out of their way to point out the good men they studied under, and they profess their orthodoxy in that way. And they go out of their way to find some quote from one of the great men, often taken out of context, that seems to support their point. And the orthodox don't need to do that. The orthodox who actually follow the way of truth and actually the things and, and in various ways reiterate the things of great theologians as they get it from scripture, they don't need to do it. So this is Jesus' point. You're making such a show, and I know why you're doing it, but what are you actually doing then? I'll tell you what you're actually doing. You are identifying yourself not with the prophets, but with their murderers. And the, the words that he uses there are pretty much like what he's saying is, who typically uh, takes care of the burial for someone who's been murdered? Right? What, what about today in, in organized crime? Who is going to take care of the burial for someone who's murdered? An accomplice, right? Somebody who is, who is in it with them, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. They killed him and you're burying them because you're an accomplice. You have identified yourself with this act of murder. And you're in perfect continuity, not with the prophets, but with those who murdered the prophets. And they, of course, go on precisely to prove Jesus' point. That is exactly what they go on to do then, as in their cross-examination and in their lying and wait, trying to catch him at his words, they are seeking something to accuse him with. And they will eventually think they find something, although it's extraordinarily difficult. It's impossible to catch Jesus rightly in any word because he's the source of truth. But the point was they were soon enough going to become the true sons 
of their murderous fathers because they themselves are going to murder Christ. And the continuity with those murderous fathers could not be any greater than what they would soon enough demonstrate. Well, how do we apply these things? These are the four mistakes that these law teachers make. They distort the word of God. They load burdens without help. They take offense at the truth. And they persecute true teachers. Well, the first and obvious application is a warning. And the warning is this. It's pretty simple. Here it is. Being in regular contact with the word of God does not guarantee that you are saved. I'll say it again. Merely being in routine contact with the word of God does not guarantee your salvation. How do we know that? Because these teachers of the law were in, in routine, daily contact with it. This was their profession. This was their job. They were in the law of God, the Torah, all the time. Were they saved? Absolutely not. And so that's a warning, isn't it? Merely being in the house of God, and it is a good thing. Let us, let us be clear about that. Outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Again, those who, who protest that they can be Christians and never darken the door of the church, that they can live independently of the community of faith that God has set up on this earth, that Christ has built for his people, they are kidding themselves. Outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation because this is where the means of grace, the means of being called, and the means of being sustained. When I preach the gospel, it is not just that you come, that those who had never heard it before come. It's that those who have already here are sustained another day by hearing this gospel. That is the means of preserving you until the end. Now, it is, so I'm saying it is a good thing to be under the hearing of the word of God. But you must know it is not going to guarantee your salvation. You must hear it with faith. Your hearing must be mixed with faith. It cannot be mixed with a standing over the word of God. And that is deadly. I know those who are professionals, professional theologians. Those who spend all their time in the word of God. And it does them no good at all because they stand over it. You must not do that. You must stand under it. You must submit yourself to it. And when you read it and there's something uncomfortable, and you know there's something uncomfortable in these pages somewhere for you, look at it and receive it. Don't stand against it. Don't stand over it. Receive it in humble submission. Secondly, I'd have us to consider Christ. You've come here to hear Christ. You want to see Christ. And I want you to to consider Christ the burden bearer. I mean, don't those law teachers make an unattractive figure? I mean, we've come across lots of unattractive figures, but these law teachers are just about the worst, really. The whole idea of them standing there, putting burdens on people which they know good and well are impossible to bear, and they have not the slightest inclination or intent to help them. What a terrible, terrible thing. So unattractive. Who would want to fall into their hands? Who would want to follow them? What a terrible thing. The great news, isn't it good news? You don't have to. We don't have to follow them. We don't, we don't have a teacher who loads us with great burdens. He's unwilling to lift a finger to help us with. We have Christ. He's the one who went completely out of his way. The one who had no burden. All of us have burdens. Those teachers had burdens they didn't acknowledge. But Christ had no burden. And he went completely, utterly out of his way just in order to bear that burden for us. 
came down from heaven in his eternal blessedness, in his eternal joy and perfection of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he came into this sin-cursed world to do what? To bear burdens. Perfect picture, isn't it? Bearing his cross. He came to bear our burdens. You know, Christ is not just for the wonderfully able. In fact, he's not for the wonderfully able at all. He's not for those who are looking for some additional burdens because they're so good at bearing them, like some of the clients of these these law teachers. He's not for that. He is for the heavy laden. He is for those who are weary of bearing burdens and want relief from them, not more. That's why we know he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you and learn from me that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What a contrast. Not these callous, terrible, burdensome teachers, but one who says, I will give you rest. Consider Christ a burden bearer. And thirdly, I would say consider Christ a true teacher. Because again, you imagine the situation of a people that lived in such great darkness, that their teachers were those who themselves were blind. They were blind leaders of the blind. They could not save themselves. They did not enter in themselves, and they were hindering those who were trying to enter in. Their situation was terrible. But Christ is the opposite of these false teachers. The opposite of those who distort the word of God to their own destruction. This is the one who makes it clear. This is the one who explains the scripture already perfect and it's, and it's, and without error in the slightest. And already clear when it's taken one scripture with another. But he came to make it more clear. He came to interpret it in all of its perfection. He was, in the words of John 1.9, the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Is that not good news? Is that not good news that we have such a teacher? He's not offended by the truth. He is the truth. He doesn't hide from the light. He doesn't distort the truth. He's a source of the pure water of the gospel. He is a, the, the sun that gives light to everyone who lives in darkness. He is, in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God who declares to us the true invisible God, which no one has seen. He's our true teacher, and we must consider him. We must consider and follow this true teacher. And fourthly, I would say, as a more practical, all these things are very practical, but I would say even more so that we ought to receive rebuke. I, I, meant, I said, just think about what the situation you would be in if you were like these uh, law experts, and that every time anyone said something t- that was true, that you that might remind you that your life is not perfect, that your ways are not quite right, that your doctrine is flawed in some sort of way, that you took it as an insult or as offensive, what kind of situation would you soon enough find yourself in? It'd be dreadful, wouldn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, my advice to you from the Word of God is that you ought to receive rebuke. Let me carry on with that quote in Matthew Henry. I said, note, it is a common thing for unhumbled sinners to call and account reproofs reproaches. It is the wisdom of those, now here's the contrast, it is the wisdom of those who desire to have sin mortified 
to make a good use of reproaches that come from an ill will and to turn them into reproofs. How about that? So the fools take things that were intended for good and they turn them into insults. Good rebukes, they turn into insults. Whereas the wise take insults and turn them into rebukes for good. You see that? Is that so true? Because if we have to wait until somebody comes only with 100% pure motivation, in which we say every last word they say is absolutely true, and we know for certain that they do it out of the purest and best motivation, let me t- uh, can I, are you ready for this? You will never, ever listen to a single rebuke that ever comes your way. You know why? Because no one has ever said such things apart from Christ. No one has ever rebuked you out of the complete, pure motivation. Of course, there's going to be envy involved. There's going to be pride involved. They're not going to be quite accurate uh, 100% of everything that they say. We know. If you're wise, if I'm wise, we will take even the things that are 100% intended as insults, And we'll find, we'll dig around in there until we find the element of truth used rightly for our rebuke. Because we know that each and every insult that has ever come our way has some element of truth. Doesn't it? Because we're sinners. Because we're sinners. Receive rebuke as if it were a gift from heaven. Because it is. Fifthly, and finally, I would say to us, of course, to speak to truth in love. We receive that truth but we ought to also speak it. Now, thankfully, as our, in wisdom, we receive even those things that are not out of love. But we, as God's people, most certainly should speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And we know. We know it will be offensive to some. But guess what? It will be the balm of life to others. They will kiss us. They will hug us in heaven. They will be so thankful that we spoke the truth to them. Even in this life, sometimes, sometimes people say, oh, I didn't want to hear that. It's the last thing I wanted to hear. I was hoping you wouldn't, have said, you wouldn't say anything about it. But I'm so thankful you did. God has given us to live in the light. And it is our privilege to convey that light to others. Certainly the truth of the gospel primarily but then the whole counsel of God that we can encourage and indeed rebuke one another in. And may God enable us to do so in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel as if indeed a great burden has been lifted from us as we consider Christ, this burden bearer. We consider this one who came from perfect blessedness and joy in heaven just so that he could bear our awful, unbearable burdens for us. And so, Heavenly Father, we are those who rejoice. We are those who are thankful to have such a Savior, to have such a teacher who, far from twisting things to kill us, rather makes the light in all of its perfection and all of its beauty and glory to be seen and to be received in our souls. And how we pray, Lord, that we would. That we'd not be like those law teachers. But Lord, when the light comes to us, that we'd embrace it and receive it as something precious to our everlasting salvation. Heavenly Father, how we pray indeed that we would live in the light and that we'd speak the truth in love as we should. And even receive rebuke when it comes our way in order that we might be more pleasing to you and more like 
Christ our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.